welcome to Dot to Dot. This week, it's just a short episode from me, Fiona. In these conversations, I'll be sharing my observations on what it means to be human, as well as the odd bit about my tried, tested and frequently failed attempts to apply the psychological advice I give to others, to myself. I hope you enjoy listening. On the 2nd of September, 2015, a story stirred something in thousands of people across Europe. For months, the news had been inundated with stories of the Syrian refugee crisis, a mumble in the background as we all carried on with our busy lives. But on that morning, the image of a small, lifeless figure on a beach in Turkey, lying on his front, the palms of his hands and the soles of his tiny shoes facing towards the sky, drove through the shell of oblivion. The image appeared on 20 million screens in just 12 hours. Another image shows an unsettled policeman carrying the toddler's body up the beach, cradling it as if he was still alive. Three-year-old Alan Kurdi drowned with his five-year-old brother, Galeb, and mother while attempting to cross the Aegean Sea. Only their father, Abdullah, survived. He describes the confusion as the flimsy boat was tossed around by the sea. I was holding my wife's hand, but my children slipped through my hands. It was dark, and everyone was screaming. I tried to catch my wife and children, but there was no hope. One by one, they died. The story of one boy brought the crisis into sharp focus. The human connection was made so much more visceral by seeing one boy and one grieving husband and father. We could understand the pain of one, where the many had become a blur of data and reports. The crisis of people fleeing civil war in Syria suddenly made sense. The image quickly went viral on social media with the hashtag Humanity Washed Ashore. Charities supporting refugees saw a dramatic upturn in donations. The amount given to the Swedish Red Cross, for example, was 55 times greater in the week following Kurdu's death. Perhaps before this, the Syrian refugee crisis was too intangible to relate to. A dead child, however, was not. Perhaps most Europeans living in peaceful countries simply could not imagine the terrors faced by these refugees. Or maybe up to this point, they were the outgroup, people different from us, which limited our empathic concern. When asked if we're empathic, most of us will say yes. But wait a minute before you jump in with your answer. While we are all born with the capacity to be empathic, this tragedy illustrates just one of the ways that we can unwittingly switch off our empathy. We have evolved to favour the in-group over the out-group. The driving force for this is simple. Not being part of a group causes psychological distress. Individual sociability may vary, 
but we are innately social beings that yearn to be accepted by other people. Neuroscientific evidence indicates that people invariably favour other members of their in-group over people who are outside of the group. If someone exhibits unusual personality traits such as a sardonic sense of humour or quirky dress sense, we subconsciously accept them if they are part of our group but tend to see the same tendencies as flaws if that person is not in our in-group. Another reason we can fail to be empathic is because we shut our empathy down. It hurts to feel others' pain. And so to protect ourselves, we use mechanisms to prevent it, which can unwittingly become ingrained in who we are, or at least how we behave. Take, for example, doctors, a profession where empathy is needed, but is all too often lacking. Think about it. Well, nurses and doctors can give us immense hope by simply telling us everything will work out okay and motivate us to get better if we take care of ourselves. Equally, they can quickly pull us down with one thoughtless comment or ill-fitting piece of advice. They can make us question ourselves. Maybe I'm not in that much pain. Perhaps there is nothing wrong with me. Even when we have been in agony for days, It's not hard to see why empathic communication skills are critical to positive outcomes in patients, being linked to increased diagnostic accuracy, having a positive impact on the extent to which patients adhere to treatment plans, leading to lower levels of emotional distress and to more positive patient outcomes. But although empathy is positive, It can also go the wrong way and cause burnout and distress to those exhibiting it. After all, feeling what every patient is going through literally hurts us at an emotional level. Anyone who watches Grey's Anatomy will know that the character Izzy gets pulled along an emotional roller coaster as a result of feeling the pain of her patients. I've worked with doctors and surgeons who are both highly empathic and others who have shut down their feelings, which serves as an unconscious protection. And studies across the world have shown that as medical students pass through their studies, their levels of empathy typically decline. Have you shut down your empathy? What medical schools don't teach is that it's possible to have empathy while not burning out moving through the brain from the emotional empathy where we feel the pain to cognitive empathy where the pain is understood. A bit like understanding the emotion but not being engulfed by it. This is different from becoming immunised against emotion which involves shutting that feeling down as a protective mechanism. Cognitive empathy in contrast, illustrates a more developed capability than either emotional empathy or emotional immunity. We can liken this to everyday emotions that we experience. Imagine that someone really annoyed you at work or even at home and that you are so angry that you want to shout and scream at them. But you don't, 
You stop yourself, assessing that feeling instead of giving in to it, and decide that shouting wouldn't be helpful in the long run. The emotional regions of your brain elicit the initial feeling, and your more rational areas of the brain then decide what to do with it. This is in effect what happens with emotional and cognitive empathy. Even for those of us who believe we are empathic, emotionally or cognitively, we can still lose it. For example, neuroscientist Tanya Singer found that part of our brain has an autocorrect mechanism, preventing us from looking only at our own feelings in a situation, ensuring that we are able to see things from others' perspectives. However, when we have to make very quick, reactionary decisions, we lose this capability, in effect overriding our empathy. So when do we get empathy? And can we become more empathic? We continue to develop empathy throughout life. It begins when we stare into our mother's eyes shortly after we're born and continues throughout childhood. But it doesn't stop there. We build it through every part of life while meaningfully connecting with others. The problem is that we're losing it, not just because of the barriers I've already mentioned, in-groups and out-groups, shutting it down as a protective mechanism or losing it because we're stressed or working too quickly but because of the impact of the way society operates more broadly. As a New York Times article states, more and more, we live in bubbles. Most of us are surrounded by people who look like us, vote like us, earn like us, spend money like us, have educations like us, and worship like us. The result is an empathy deficit and it's at the root of many of our biggest problems. There are many personal benefits to being empathic, from success in life, leadership and well-being, to the organisational benefits empathy enables around diversity and inclusion, through to the societal benefits, creating a better, more sustainable and more humane future. And sadly, there is evidence that our levels of empathy are on the decline. But there's also evidence to suggest that we can continue to work on and develop our empathy throughout life. There are some great tips in the New York Times article I referred to, which I will put a link to in the show notes. And of course, there are many tips in my books also. But very simply speaking, here are some things you can do. Be conscious of putting yourself in others' shoes. Listen, watch, be curious and try to understand. This will help you to overcome outgroup biases that you're probably completely unaware of, but that could have a hugely negative impact on someone else. If you feel too much, work on how to take a step back. Still feeling but making it a more rational process. This will help you to help others far more effectively and prevent burnout. If you feel too little, allow yourself to experience what others are going through. Really make the effort to imagine yourself in their position. If this is hard, speak to them to find out as much as you can. The more you know, the easier it will be to experience empathic concern.
And remember that when you're stressed, you're less likely to see someone else's point of view. Pause. Reflect. And take time to consider the impact before moving on. Do these things every day. And even remind yourself with every interaction. They may sound simple, but if you make a conscious effort to include them in your daily to-do list, you'll be amazed at how much it enriches your connections, your life, and even your success. And you will be contributing to making our world a better place. Mm-hmm.